Well, good morning. Please open your scriptures to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And our children are dismissed for their lesson. They're also welcome to stay here. Hebrews 4:12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The reason we read Psalm 19 is in a beautiful way that really only the Psalms do. It moves from general revelation, the heavens declaring the glory of God, into specific revelation and all these terms used for the Word of God and how we move from a general understanding, revelation of God, to that specific understanding. And so this morning, that is going to be our focus as we continue a six-sermon series uh, entitled, Who We Are. And it's a reminder of what our mission is as a church to keep us on task and what those five essentials that will help us accomplish that mission are. Last week, Sean unpacked our mission statement It reminds us why Highlands, and really why any other church for that matter, should exist. You can see it there on the screen. It is to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. Ordinarily, we preach expositionally for this series. We are departing from that a little bit. It's not that we're not carefully exegeting the word. But what we are doing is we are going to several different passages to support and anchor these essentials into scriptural texts. Jesus gave us a mission. We'll look at that more uh, when we get to the essential on mission. Uh, There are five great commission passages, which means we don't get to choose or craft our own mission. Uh, We don't get to choose our own vision. We actually submit to the vision, the mission that Jesus gave to his church. And if you take all five Great Commission passages, um, they intersect at one point. And it's this, the ambition to get the gospel to everyone. Some of the wording in these Great Commission passages is this, all the nations, the whole creation to the end of the earth. And it's done by making disciples. Not getting mass decisions, but actually making follower learners, teaching them to observe whatever Christ commanded. For instance, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's Jesus' mission for his church. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. So what that Great Commission passage is doing is he's giving you the details of what the gospel is. Repentance, forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. John 20, 21, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you in Acts 1, 8, you will be with my witnesses to the end of the earth. That's why Highland's mission, our vision or purpose, whatever word you want to use on that, that we are primarily aiming for is the mission that Jesus Christ gave to all his churches, 
the church universal to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. Underneath the mission, then we have listed five essentials or values to keep us on that mission. The reason we've done this is because every time we say yes to something, we will by default say no to other things. And what we want to do is make sure we are not just being crowded out by the busyness of programs or by the urgent, but we are staying on task to what is necessary, to what Jesus Christ said is the fulfilling of this mission. So each of these values is anchored deeply into the New Testament. So here are the five essentials as an overview as we move from the mission into the essentials. Scripture, knowing Jesus by learning God's word and applying his truth through the power of his spirit. Worship. Adoring Jesus through God-exalting, word-saturated, spirit-led worship. Ministry. Serving Jesus by equipping every member to love God, love others, and make disciples. Community. Displaying Jesus to one another through caring relationships, mutual accountability, and acts of service. And mission, proclaiming Jesus in word and action from our neighborhood to the nations. So today, which could really be a 20-sermon series on its own, we're going to consider the first of these essentials, which is Scripture. And the reason it's first is because everything else we do flows out from our view and estimation Of what the scriptures are. Knowing Jesus by learning God's word and applying his truth to the power of the spirit. That basically breaks down into four parts. And that will actually have to be another sermon because that essential does not matter if we as God's people or professing Christians fail to understand that the scripture has authority and why it has authority. D.A. Carson said this. A high view of Scripture is of little value to us if we do not enthusiastically embrace the Scripture's authority. There have been a lot of people who, 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 who quote, sort of as their mantra, the Bible as our final rule for faith and practice. Yet in their practice, they deny that very proclamation, that very commitment. They'll place opinion or preference or some other trend over the fact that everything must be tested by Scripture. So let me ask you a question. Who or what is your objective, fixed, and final authority? To what or whom do you make your final appeal? Is your final authority Your own experience, judgment, desires, or whims. Is it your family or friend group or government or some other external legal authority? Or is it simply religious traditionalism or pragmatism? We live in a world literally bloated with with competing truth claims. Everyone telling us what we need to believe and what we need to do and what we need not believe. Cancel culture. A race agenda by those who are viciously and violently racist. Virulent agendas. Add to this the plethora of religion, even light Christianity, that does not provide clarity but continues to further the confusion. What we're left desiring, I think, good people, 
even unsaved people, are desiring a good and just and final authority that is trustworthy. And my question is, do we have that? How do we sift through all these claims? How do, how do people know what to think about God or the origins of the universe or relationships or salvation or peace? Morality, gender, life after death, many other important matters. And to answer those questions, what we need is some sort of norm or standard or criteria to which we can appeal. In other words, we need an ultimate authority. One where we will be immovable and one by which we are willing to die for. What if we actually had the words of God, the very words of God written down for our learning knowledge and hope, for our relationship with him, for us to understand how we can be restored to the God of creation? What if we had that, a flawless, ultimate standard That would be beautiful, wouldn't it? How well do you know the doctrine of Scripture? Or another way to ask you this is how well do you know what the Scripture says about the Scripture? And do you believe what you have right here, all the various translations out there, good, careful translations, how do you know these are the very words breathed out by God? Because if you believe that, you will accept it and submit to it as a final authority. But if you don't, you'll simply quote it as spiritual platitudes of good news, but not really embrace it as that which stands over your actions and your attitudes. This is such a broad topic. I've crafted this sermon around 20 questions. I know that sounds like a lot. It's not an outline. 20 questions. On the doctrine of Scripture, I adapted this from Tim Challies and developed it and edited it, and I I edited off about ten questions. So we're just going to work through these questions to keep you engaged, to develop these thoughts underneath each question, and to arrive at a conclusion at the end of this sermon. First question. Is it appropriate to say that God is the author of the Bible? Keep your own score. And don't, don't answer out loud yes or no. Uh, Keep your own score, okay, 20 20 questions. Is it appropriate to say that, that God is the author of the Bible? And the answer is true. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. He uses a rare Greek word. It's theopnistos or theopneustos, literally God breathed. And what Paul is using is what the Old Testament writers used a lot, and that is an anthropomorphism, which is attributing to God human characteristics so that we can understand him. When you talk, or even now when I'm preaching, when, when I put my hand in front of my mouth, I can feel my breath. What Paul is saying is that even though God is a spirit, he has breathed out specific words to us. One of the reasons for our believing the Bible is breathed out by God, or some of your translations say by inspiration. Both of those are accurate translations. One of the reasons for us believing that the scriptures, the 66 books of our Bible, are breathed out, are the very words of God, is Jesus, our own Lord's estimation, obedience to, and use of the scriptures. So you cannot carefully read the life of the Lord Jesus Christ 
without noticing how often he references back to the Old Testament, how he sees his own mission in the scriptures, how he understands his own identity as the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. His birth, boyhood, entrance into ministry, his belief in the literal historical accounts of the Old Testament, including the story of Jonah, which he refers to as a literal event, is obvious in our Lord's life. For example, after Jesus rose from the dead on those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he said this to to two disciples. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, at that point, these two disciples hadn't recognized this was Jesus. Jesus hadn't disclosed that to them yet. And this is how Jesus then proved to him that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And beginning with Moses, okay, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you know Jesus? Christ can be found in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Jesus didn't go anywhere new. He simply went back to the Old Testament books and he expounded to them the things concerning who he is. He could have done a miracle. He could have spoken something new and novel. He's the son of God. He didn't. He went back to the Old Testament. I know you're thinking in your mind that was only question one. Okay, here's the second question. Because God is the author of the Bible, it is not appropriate to say that the books in the Bible have human authors. And the answer to that is false. Second Peter one twenty one says this: Men spoke the words of Scripture. In fullness, it says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, the Bible has. One divine author and 40 plus human authors. Question three, inspiration means that God dictated the words of the Bible to human beings who then wrote them down. I actually want to hear your answer on this one. Yes or no? True or false? Oh, it's, it's quite, quite split. It's false, but not entirely. Okay. <laughs> That's why I wanted to hear from you. Uh, the Holy Spirit governed the writing of the text. He did, that by, he did that by working through human beings, using their skills, vocabulary, backgrounds, hurts, successes, experiences, research, personality. He used Joshua, a military commander. He used David, a warrior king. He used Peter, a seasoned fisherman inspired them, God breathed out his words through them, and they wrote to us the exact words God wanted us to have. But God did at times, though rarely, dictate what he would say. One example of this is the Decalogue, or what we typically refer to as the Ten Commandments. He told Moses, write this down. So there is dictation, but that is not normally or commonly the way in which inspiration worked. Question four, the ultimate reason that scripture is authoritative is because God is its author. That answer is true. Wayne Grudem said this, as God's very words, the words of scripture are more than simply true. They are truth itself. They are the final measure by which all supposed truth is to be gauged. Jesus prayed this in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Number five, 
God communicated the words of the Bible to human authors without error. Without error. And the answer to that is true. Okay, what Scripture says is what God says, and, does, and God does not lie or make mistakes. For example, Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. Okay, now I'm going to clarify something, because some of your minds are already running ahead, which I encourage you're already questioning, and you're double-guessing. So the next question is, the word autographs refers to the original manuscripts or documents on which the Bible was written. That answer is true. The originals are what we call autographs. Um, the documents, okay, for example, such as the letter to the Romans that Paul had dictated to Tertius and then entrusted to Phoebe to deliver to the church is called an autograph. The original is an autograph. None of those autographs, to our knowledge, exist today, perhaps by God's goodness, his divine design, because we would end up worshiping a document rather than the person of Jesus Christ. Number seven, while it is true that the Bible is without error, the doctrine of inerrancy, inerrancy simply means without error, strictly applies only to the autographs or to what the authors originally wrote. More technical question. Okay, so before you answer that, are there scribal errors in the transcription in the translations taken from manuscripts that have been copied and copied and copied and copied. Originally from the autographs, but now we have manuscripts. And yes, those manuscripts do have errors. So the answer to this one is what? Next slide. True. Okay, it applies to the original autographs. That's why even in some of... What you value as some of the higher level translations, you will find some contradictions within the translation. Okay. Today, none of the original autographs remain. We know that God does not lie or make mistakes. We also know from fact that there are scribal errors and copier errors in every Hebrew and Greek manuscript that we have. Question eight. Since there are copying errors in every manuscript, not the autographs, but in the manuscripts, affirming the inerrancy of the original text is a pointless exercise. False. With the abundance of manuscripts, and you can study this out through, through appropriate textual criticism, you can look at the wide abundance of manuscripts that we have it is amazing how many copies and manuscripts we have to verify the actual wording of the text. With all that, the original wording of the Bible can be preserved with incredible accuracy. That's why I can say this. I hold this. This is a, I think this is either an English Standard Version or a New Living Translation. I can say this is the preserved Word of God. And you can say that with your King James Version or your New King James Version or your English Standard Version. You can say it is the preserved word of God. Wayne Grudem defines inerrancy in this way. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Number eight. 
Actually, we were number nine. See, we're going faster than you thought. The words in Scripture that were actually spoken by Jesus, the red letters in some of your versions, carry more authority than the other words of Scripture. I have to hear your answer on this one, too. Yes or no? True or false? The answer is false. The answer is false. Because all of God's words that were breathed out find their origin not in man, Second Peter chapter 1, but in God. Matthew Barrett says this, the doctrine of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture is that as a corollary of the inspiration of Scripture, the breathed out Scripture, uh, are wholly true in all things that they assert in the original autographs and therefore function with the authority of God's own words. Since all these words are God's words intended to us, the words of the Son do not carry greater authority than the words of the Father spoken through the inspiration by His Spirit. Number 10, Scripture tells me everything I need to know to be saved. True. This is what we call the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture means the Bible is necessary for knowing God, knowing the gospel, and for knowing God's will. But let me ask you this. Do you need a copy of Scripture to know that God exists? Okay, go back to what Joe read for us this morning in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, that by the very things that were created, you can know that God exists. But, do you, but, but can you look at the mountains, the snow-covered Rockies right there, or go to Nepal and be enamored and overwhelmed by the height of Mount Manaslu and say, wow, God sent His Son to die for my sin. No, the mountains don't tell you that. General revelation must move to special or specific revelation and proclaim to you a savior. Matter of fact, Paul told Timothy this, that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul clearly asked this question in Romans ten fourteen: How can you even be saved unless someone is preaching? It's that specific message of Jesus Christ as our savior. Number 11. Scripture tells me everything I need to know to live a life pleasing to God. I'm starting to see head shake. You're doing well, well on this quiz. True. Scripture equips people for every good work. This is called the clarity of Scripture. Even ordinary people can read God's word and understand God's will. It's not left for the scholars. It's not left for the, for the high-level theologians. Wayne Grudem states this, the Bible is written in such a way that all things necessary to become a Christian, live as a Christian, and grow as a Christian are clear. That's what Psalm 19.7 said this morning. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And David says this in Psalm 119.130, the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Matter of fact, that fact alone is what led uh, Luther to translate the scripture into German because he believed that the common person could read and understand the word of God on their own without the magisterium, the Roman Catholic leadership, telling them what they had to believe about a text. Question 12. Scripture tells me everything I will ever want or need to know. False. There are many things you will need to know that the scripture won't tell you, like don't step out in front of a speeding car. It's not going to tell you that, right? 
or it's, it's not going to tell you how to drive a car or how to cook great chicken tikka masala or how to catch the largest silver salmon on an Alaskan trip with other men from the church. It's not going to... Right? The sufficiency of Scripture doesn't mean it's going to tell you everything. It doesn't work like an encyclopedia. Like, okay, who am I, not me, like, but a single, who am I supposed to marry? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Honestly, that's where I opened up. Um, That's not how the Bible works. It's not like a genie in a lamp. Okay? What we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture is it sufficiently addresses everything God intended for his people to have at every successive point in redemptive history. And it is sufficient for you to know Jesus Christ, to live and obey God, and to serve other people. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. What is, often, what is often questioned then on, on the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is then the application of Scripture. And I, w- I want you to follow with me as we work through this. For example, on the matter of the sufficiency of Scripture, we might want to address a social question. Abortion, racism, or welfare. The Bible does not explicitly address any of those issues. Now, some of your minds are already are already protesting because what you have already done, because you understand the scriptures, you are taking the principles of applying scripture well and you're already running over here. But it never uses the word abortion or racism. And the closest at some points you'll get is in James where there's there's a preferential treatment, but it's in the church and it's about the poor and the wealthy. But there are passages that passages that teach this because because there will be some critics of the pro-life movement that will tell Christians because the Bible does not explicitly address it. You can't enter into this conversation. But scripture does teach a very high view of unborn life. That children are a heritage of God, that God knew children in the womb and God formed their parts. That God is the giver and taker of life in addition to the sixth commandment, which says you shall not murder. Okay, let's put let's put that thinking with the sufficiency of Scripture into context. See, the Bible says thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, but it doesn't mention the killing of your neighbor's dog who barks all day. Though that though that would be wrong. And it doesn't explain why God told Peter, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. What we're saying about the sufficiency of Scripture is that there is enough there when brought together with the discernment of the Holy Spirit to make right applications to social issues. For example, in Matthew 22, 23 to 33, the Sadducees asked Jesus a stupid question to make him look stupid. They're, they're, they're pushing against his teaching on the resurrection. And they said, a widow was married to seven brothers. To whom will she be married in the resurrection? They thought they got him. Jesus did not back off. He did not give in to the critics. He taught that the word of God is not silent on that issue. And he exposed the Sadducees' silly story. And he said this. Listen to what he says in verse 29. 
You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. What he was saying is the scriptures do address this specific situation. And and here's the answer. And you can read in Matthew 22 and see how he develops his argument and he pushes back on that. If you want to know what the Bible teaches about racism, you'll need to know some biblical texts. You'll also need to know what racism stands for and how it is prolific in our society and what is wrong and right about it, about what people are saying about it. We can apply biblical principles to racism, even though it doesn't explicitly address the complex problem in 2021. For example, every human being is unique and a precious image bearer of God. All ethnic groups and nations share common ancestry. Our ethnicity uniquely honors God. Our value is not based on our ethnicity, race, or gender. All human beings have sinned and are in need of salvation. So Scripture doesn't say everything, but what it says is enough for us to navigate even the social issues that we face. Or finally, on the question of self-defense, a topic that confronts children everywhere, at every playground, in every state. If your only answer is to turn the other cheek and let him hit you again, you have failed that child. That tells me you neither know the word of God nor the power of God because you have failed to take in the bigger picture and understand the dynamics of the rest of his school year. Because we must also then, rather than just proof text, draw in principles that apply God's care, mediation, appropriate justice and protection. Okay. So when we say scripture is sufficient, we don't mean that the Bible is going to function like an encyclopedia But these are all the words of God God intended for us to have, and we can live all of life based on the authority and sufficiency of God's word. Question 13. That was the longest answer, I believe. Every passage in Scripture is easy to understand perfectly. False. See, the the slides are helping me move along. Do you see that? Uh, Even Peter had to admit this. I love this. Even there, there are things in Paul's epistles that are hard to understand. You know, I am so thankful as a pastor theologian that, that Peter said that. Because Peter understood what being inspired by God to communicate scriptures was. And yet he has to admit, Paul wrote some hard, hard things. Question 14. Scripture is the one and only means God uses to communicate truth about himself. False. God shows himself in the things that have not been made, Romans 1, and as, even as we saw in Psalm 19, in creation, in conscience, in many other ways. Question 15. The New Testament corrects the Old Testament. False. Since God is the origin of all His words, the source of all Scripture, it is a unified whole. What the New Testament does, it expands on, but it does not correct the Old Testament. Matter of fact, when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said by them of all time, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, he wasn't correcting it. He was correcting the application of the Pharisees and he was bringing them back to the original intent of that law. Number 16, one passage of scripture will never actually contradict another. True. We can talk about that more in our home groups. We can give you some principles. I might even develop that further in the week at a glance tomorrow morning. Uh, 17, we should interpret the less clear passages of Scripture in light of its clearer passages. 
true. This is called the analogy of Scripture, where you take the clearer passages to interpret the more difficult ones rather than create some kind of occultic, weird doctrine on sort of this enigma passage and use it as a proof text to make it say what you want it to say. Number 18, the ultimate focus of the Bible is Christians. True or false? False. Last week, Sean talked about the glory of God, and that glory points to his son. It is the work of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 5, 39, scriptures bear witness about me. And then in Luke 24, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Scriptures point to Jesus Christ. Number 19, it is possible that God will speak again and add new books to the Bible. I mean, aren't all things possible with God? But Hebrews and Titus tell us it's impossible for God to lie. False. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And his son's words are what we call the New Testament. It is what we need, the sufficient, full, final word of God in our period of history. Number 20, last question. The overarching goal of the Bible is to bring readers into a saving relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus. The answer is true. These two verses, look at what Paul says, they are able to make you wise for salvation in John 20, 20, 31, John says, these are written, the, the, the signs and the wonders and the teachings that I've included in this account of the gospel are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Listen to the indictment that, that Jesus gives to the Jews, religious, well-studied, scholarly Jews. He says in, in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. It almost seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But then listen to what Jesus says. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There they are clutching the books of Moses, rejecting Jesus Christ, whom the book of Moses pointed to. It's a very sad indictment. They became experts of God's word. They sat in the seat of Moses and they totally missed the best gift God would ever give. And that is the gift of his own son. In conclusion, I want to just read a quote by Matthew Smithhurst, and then I will invite the music team forward. He writes, contrary to popular belief, the Bible is not simply a collection of ethical principles, moral platitudes or abstract life lessons. Imagine a single unfolding, thrilling drama, a story of epic proportions that is more fascinating than your favorite fairy tale, because it is true. That's God's word. If we ever hope to properly handle the stories in the Bible, we must first grasp the story of the Bible. And that story, the one that traverses its way from Genesis to Revelation, though recorded for you, is not finally about you. The focus is far higher and the hero far better. Given the Bible's astounding diversity, its plotline's fundamental coherence is striking. 66 books of various genres, 40-plus authors from a variety of backgrounds and occupations, 1,500-plus years to write, 10 civilizations, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1 unified story of redemption. 
The Bible has one ultimate plan, one ultimate plot, one ultimate champion, one ultimate king. That is why Scripture is our first essential. Everything flows out from it and points us back to Jesus Christ, our champion king. Knowing Jesus by learning God's word and applying his truth through the power of his spirit. That is our true, objective, and final authority as believers in this Highlands Baptist Church. I'm going to invite our music team forward. We will sing a hymn of response. While they're getting into place and getting ready to lead us, I want to encourage you to read God's Word because they are God's words to us. If you're having difficulty allowing God's Word to have, have an effect and shape you every day, just start reading a proverb a day. Take the date, whatever today is, and just correspondingly read that proverb. Start reading the Gospels again. Start moving through the Psalms. You don't have to read through the Bible in a year. But allow the Scripture to start shaping your life, your attitudes, your affections. And if you're wondering, is Jesus Christ truly the Son of God? Read the Gospel of John this week. And ask God, open the eyes of my heart. I'm in unbelief. Help me to believe. And read the Gospel of John and see the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Let's pray.